Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is supported by the kind and generous members of the Boy Arduma. If you want to join them to get members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes, ad-free content, and written transcripts for the price of a cup of coffee a month, then you can by subscribing to the Boy Arduma via Patreon, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Check the episode notes for details. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 68, The Lopuchina Conspiracy. Thanks for listening in. So last time out we covered the first few months of Elizabeth Petrovna's reign which centred around her predecessors Ivan VI and his mother Anna Leopoldovna. Her coronation, her nephew, Peter Fyodorovich, who she'd brought over to Russia from Holstein, and the war of the Austrian succession. This week, apart from the coronation, it's very much a case of rinse and repeat, but with the added complexity of a particular incident, the eponymous Lopuchina conspiracy or affair. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, crikey, does anyone even say that anymore? Crikey, Damon, the last thing we need at the moment is a further slab of complexity. Things are confusing enough. To which I would say, in a softer than usual, but slightly patronising voice, I know, but don't worry, we'll get to meet some old friends and we'll get to tidy up something that has been ongoing now for a number of episodes. Plus, the Lopuchina affair will move us on a couple of years. Seriously, though, I'll be doing plenty of recaps, and so, hopefully, having a larger number of plates spinning than normal shouldn't be too onerous or taxing. Anyway, assuming that you are ready and that you're all nice and comfortable, let's get stuck into some history of Russia. And we'll start off with someone who's not very happy. It's June 1742, 
and the now 14-year-old nephew and protégé of the Empress, Peter Fyodorovich, is still struggling to get to grips with his new life in Russia. And he's struggling because, well, to be honest, where do we start? I mentioned in the last episode his weak and nervous disposition, his altogether odd appearance, and the fact that Peter's, in effect, parentless upbringing in Holstein had left him ill-prepared for adolescent life. He'd been unloved, poorly educated, and treated abysmally by his governor and nemesis Otto Brumer, who had managed to accompany his whipping boy to St. Petersburg and was still there, maintaining his reign of terror, but more secretly and less overtly. His tutor, the worldly wise, kind and patient Professor Stelling, was trying his best to educate his young pupil in all matter of subjects, but Peter's constant fidgeting, lack of concentration and immaturity made him an almost impossible student. His grasp of the Russian language was almost non-existent, something that would continue into adulthood, and so he conversed in German whenever he could, which, much to his aunt's displeasure, was most of the time. He showed no interest in his academic studies, and in fact the only thing that interested him was anything and everything to do with soldiers and the military. By far the biggest problem, though, was that Peter couldn't stand St. Petersburg or anything to do with Russia, which he saw as foreign, antiquated and backward. He was pining for the simplicity of his life back in Holstein, where, if you put Brimmer to one side, he'd been left mostly to his own devices, or that's how he remembered it anyway. Now Elizabeth showed as much encouragement as she could and showered her nephew with kind words and praise whenever he showed any kind of promise, which was almost never. But privately she bemoaned Peter's behaviour, manner, appearance and lack of discernible improvement in any of his subjects. Nevertheless, and like her predecessor Anna Ivanovna, she was determined that Russia would have a Romanov heir and that that heir should be Peter. After all, what or who was the alternative? Well, as we know, there was one other person, ex-Tsar Ivan VI, but he was hardly in Elizabeth's plans for the future, far from it, and for the time being, he was being kept safe and secure miles away from the capital in Rannenburg. Neither did Elizabeth show any interest in getting married and having children herself, and so, despite her misgivings, in November 1742, the Empress bit the bullet. Peter was baptised, received into the Orthodox Church, and formally proclaimed as Grand Duke and heir to the Russian Empire. But despite his new position, the new heir to the Russian throne remained uninterested and sullen, and so Elizabeth came to the conclusion that the only thing that would sort her nephew out would be to find him a bride, preferably someone of his own age, and get him married off sooner rather than later. And so, with the Empress scouring the lists of the European royal houses for a suitable match, we will leave the unsuspecting Peter to his fate and check in on what was going on with the War of the Hats, which was currently being contested by Russia and Sweden, mainly in Finland. 
Now, we briefly covered the background to this conflict in a previous episode, but I think it's worth looking at both the cause and the reason as to why Elizabeth had recently decided to prolong or restart the hostilities. At the end of the Great Northern War in 1721, politics in Sweden was dominated by two opposing factions. The Caps, or Mersorna, who were liberal in outlook and represented the poorer or working class sections of Swedish society, and the Hats, or Hatana, who were conservative and represented the rich and the powerful. For almost two decades, the Caps, who favoured peace and who were pro-Russian in outlook, dominated the political scene. However, in 1738, the Hats, who were anti-Russian, were swept into power. These events had been watched closely by the French, who were keen to build an anti-Hapsburg alliance. They'd already managed to get Frederick the Great's Prussia on side, and were certain that Russia, Austria's traditional ally, was too wrapped up with its own problems to interfere with their plans. But, and just to make sure, they suggested to the Hats, who actually didn't need much persuasion, that it was about time that they did something about the territories that they'd given up to Russia after the Great Northern War, and the Swedes, who were champing at the bit, agreed and declared war on Russia. However, and as we know, the invasion of Russia in 1741 never materialised, and the ensuing conflict turned out to be a complete and utter disaster for the Swedes, and so the French were forced to turn to diplomacy and subterfuge to a. try to stop the Swedes from being annihilated, and b. attempt to provoke regime change in Russia via overtures that they made to Elizabeth Petrovna. We know that Elizabeth hedged her bets and didn't give much away during her discussions with Chatterley and Lestock. But one thing she was meant to have said yes to was that should she ever get to be in charge of Russia, she would of course enter into a treaty with Sweden to return all or some of their former territories. Both sides signed an armistice in December 1741. The Swedes, relieved, headed back to their bases. Elizabeth, who had now seized power in St. Petersburg, concentrated on getting her house in order and working through her entree. And the French sat back and waited for her to come to the table and join the anti-Austrian alliance. Except that's not what happened, because Elizabeth had decided on a different course of action. Because when push came to shove, there was no way that she was going to give away territory that her father had won from Sweden in the Great Northern War. And in February 1742, she ordered her foreign minister, Alexei Bestuzhev, who was known to be pro-Austrian, to break the armistice, get the Russian army back into the field and onto the front foot which is exactly what he did, to great effect, although he was aided much of the time by poor military planning and the execution of said plans by the Swedes. The Swedish army failed to coordinate with the navy, its generals failed to coordinate with each other, and ministers back in Stockholm kept on changing their minds. Frankly, it was a mess. And in 1742, it was all over by the shouting and the Swedes were forced to accept a peace deal that was advantageous to the Russians. The Swedes got most of Finland, but none of the other territories that they had lost in the Great Northern War, and in return they had to accept young Peter's uncle, Adolf Frederick of Holstein, 
as heir to the Swedish throne. And in 1743, the agreement was formally signed via the Treaty of Orbo. The Russian army returned home and Adolf Frederick was officially designated as the Crown Prince. These events, however, had set French alarm bells ringing. What were Elizabeth and Bastuzhev up to? And more importantly, what did it mean for the future and French ambitions in Central Europe? Would Bastuzhev persuade Elizabeth to get involved in the War of the Austrian Succession on Maria Theresa's side? Well, Chetardy, the French ambassador, and his partner in crime, Lestoc, weren't about to sit back and wait for events to unfold. They decided that Bestuzhev had to go. The trouble was, how? Well, they knew, as did most, that while Elizabeth valued Bestuzhev on a professional level, she really didn't have much time for him on a personal one. And so they would have to come up with a plan to discredit him, a plan that they hoped would eventually bring Elizabeth back on side with Team France. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And so now it's time to weave another event into the narrative that would in time become known as the Lopuccina Conspiracy. But to provide some background to this, we need to go back in time a bit and meet some old friends. And don't worry, I'll be taking this slowly because there are lots of names. Now, I'm sure that most of you will remember Anna Mons, Peter the Great's erstwhile German mistress her brother Willem, and her sister Matriona, or Matriana. Anna had died of consumption, or as it's known today, tuberculosis, back in 1714. And then towards the end of Peter's reign, Willem and Matriona got themselves into a spot of bother. Willem as Catherine I's lover, supposedly, and Matriona as the go-between, or matchmaker, again, supposedly. Peter the Great had Willem executed, and Matriona was flogged and exiled to Tobolsk in Siberia. But after Peter's death and Catherine I's succession in 1725, Matriona was allowed to return to court. Matriona had three grown-up children, two sons, Pavel and Piotr, and a daughter, Natalia, who was married to a certain Stepan Lopukhin, who, incidentally, was a cousin of Peter the Great's first wife, Eudoxia. And it's this Natalia Lopukhina who gave her name to the conspiracy that I'm about to try and get to the bottom of. And don't worry, throughout this episode, I'll sometimes say Lopukhina 
or Lopuccina. I haven't really decided which one is right and I'm just going to say which one I feel most comfortable with at the time. Okay, back on track. Prior to Elizabeth's coup, Natalia Lopuccina had three things going for her. One, she was considered to be one of the most beautiful women at court. Two, the Empress Anna Ivanovna liked her. And three, she had links to the powerful Bestuzhev family through her friendship with Anna Bestuzheva, who was the wife of Alexei Bestuzhev's elder brother, Mikhail. And it was solely down to this third reason that Natalia was able to remain at court when Elizabeth came to power. Because the new empress was not a big fan of Natalia, with some saying that this was all down to Natalia's ties to the Mons family, and others pointing out that it was all due to Elizabeth being jealous of Natalia's looks. And it's here that Chetardi and Lestock saw their chance. They'd managed to get hold of and make public a number of letters that Natalia had written to a particular courtier in which she was less than complimentary about the Empress. And at the same time, and just to make sure that the message was hit home, they started to spread a couple of other rumours. The first was that Natalia's son, Ivan Lopukin, had been overheard making disparaging remarks about the Empress, and had even gone as far to say that the ruler of Russia should be Ivan VI and not Elizabeth. And the second was that an Austrian diplomat, the Marquis Botha d'Adorno, had been a frequent guest at both of the Bestuzhev brothers' houses and had been overheard making remarks that were similar to Ivan Lopukin's, i.e. Ivan VI should be the Tsar. Now, apart from all of the names I've just introduced you to, all of this sounds a bit tenuous, desperate and convoluted to me, but then, dear listeners, who am I to question? Anyway, if all of that wasn't bad enough, a few months later, a much more serious event took place which proved to be the icing on the cake, or the tipping point, and it concerned the Empress's fashion rules. Elizabeth's favourite colour was pink, apparently, and from the time of her accession, she had made it clear to the ladies at court that only she could be seen wearing it. But, guess what? One evening, Natalia Lopuccina turned up at court wearing, horror of horrors, a pink rose in her hair. Elizabeth spotted the offending item, stopped proceedings, summoned Natalia and made her kneel down in front of her. She then pulled the rose from Natalia's hair and to add insult to injury, gave her a hard, crisp slap to the face. But that wasn't to be the end of it, because soon afterwards, and having heard the other rumours, an enraged Elizabeth ordered an inquiry. She wanted to find out exactly what Natalia Lopuccina and Anna Bestujeva had been getting up to. The inquiry was ordered to go through everything with a fine-tooth comb, and that's exactly what it did. And several months later, it reported its findings, which, in effect, boiled down to the fact that, and again, guess what? All of the nasty rumours were true. Both Natalia and Anna were arrested, 
imprisoned, and after month-long bouts of torture directed by old Ushakov and his men, both were sentenced to death. However, uh, I guess this is a slightly positive however, well, it was for Natalia and Anna, sort of, Elizabeth had promised that under her watch there would be no executions in Russia. And so, even though in September 1743 the condemned were led out to a scaffold, they weren't hanged. Instead, they were both stripped naked and flogged. And then, well, you might just want to skip forward for 30 seconds. The executioner was told to rip out their tongues. Now, apparently, Anna Bestujeva had bribed him a couple of days before, though why she would do that, I don't know. And her tongue was just clipped. But Natalia Lopuchina struggled and bit his hand, and so her entire tongue was ripped out in one violent movement. And then to finish things off, both women were exiled to Siberia. So... The conspiracy cooked up by Shetadi and Lestock had claimed its first victims, and surely now it wouldn't be long before Alexei Bestuzhev too fell from power. Except that he didn't. Things did get a bit tricky for a while, and he had to eat some pieces of humble pie, which we'll cover in the next episode. But the simple fact was that for purely personal reasons, Elizabeth, it seemed, had only been interested in punishing Natalia and Anna. She did make an attempt to get Maria Theresa to chastise the Marquis Botta d'Adorno, but the Austrian Empress was having none of it, and so that appeared to be that. There was another group of people, though, whose fate, through no fault of their own, would be effectively sealed by the Lopuccina conspiracy, the Brunswicks. In the last episode, we saw how a worried Elizabeth had moved Anna Leopoldovna, Anton, the two children, and Julia von Mengden away from the Baltic coast and down to the town of Rannenberg in southern Russia. But at some point during the madness of the Lopuchina conspiracy, with the rumours concerning Ivan VI being the true ruler of Russia doing the rounds, Elizabeth decided that they needed to be kept more securely and remotely, and that place would be the tiny settlement of Kolmogori. Which, if you say it like that, Kolmogori, sounds like an idyllic village somewhere in either Scotland or Ireland. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Kolmogori was actually up in the Arctic north near Archangelsk, and its name was derived from the Finnish Kalomeki, meaning Corpse Hill or Cemetery. Anna and Anton would go on to have three more children in Kolmogory, a daughter named Elizabeth, who was born in 1743, and two sons, Peter and Alexei, born in 1745 and 1746, respectively. Unfortunately, Anna Leopoldovna died soon after Alexei's birth, leaving her husband Anton to bring up his four children alone. Hang on a minute, though. Weren't there five children? Well... Yes, there were, and well spotted. The eldest son, an ex-Tsar, Ivan, was considered to be a particular threat. And at some point in 1744, when he was only four years old, 
he'd been moved to a separate location in Colmogory with just a jailer for company. And let's just pause there for a moment and try to imagine what that must have been like for the poor little soul. Four years old, just a jailer for company, mother dead, didn't see anybody else. Julia von Mengden, Anna's companion, or companion, didn't accompany the Brunswick to the northern wastes, and she would remain imprisoned and alone in Rannenberg for the rest of Elizabeth's reign. Okay, with events in Russia more or less covered, and to a certain degree stable, let's take a very quick look at what the French, the Austrians, the Prussians, the Saxons, the Bavarians, and stop the press, the British, yes, the British, were all getting up to. In June 1742, the Austrians and Prussians had signed a new treaty. This allowed Frederick the Great time to regroup and Maria Theresa's armies free to concentrate solely on the French and their Bavarian and Saxon allies. And during the latter part of 1742, the Austrians, who were now well and truly on the front foot, had managed to occupy most of Bavaria and in December, Prague was also recaptured. This left the Holy Roman Emperor and Elector of Bavaria, Charles VII, feeling abandoned by the French, and so he fled to Augsburg and reached out to the Austrians and the British to start peace talks. But why the Brits? What have they got to do with anything? Well, let me try and explain. George II, the British King, was also the Elector of Hanover, and he'd managed to get himself into a situation where, on the one hand, as the British King, he was an ally of Austria, but on the other hand, as Elector of Hanover, he'd signed a pact of neutrality with France. But now, with Charles VII knocking on his door, and his Parliament, who'd only just found out about the pact with France, up in arms, something had to give. George, who was over in Germany at the time, met with Charles and the Austrians, and they agreed to combine their forces and form an anti-French alliance. And George justified this to the French on the basis that it was London that was paying for his troops, and not Hanover. In June 1743, George II personally led the combined forces to victory at the Battle of Dettingen, becoming the last serving British monarch to command his troops in person. And so with things going well against the French to her west, Maria Theresa started to make preparations to reclaim another chunk of her territory, and that meant getting an army in place to attack Frederick the Great and kick him out of Silesia. And that, dear listeners, for the time being, is where we will leave things for today. Join me next time when we'll be checking to see if Bestuzhev has had his fill of humble pie, almost, and if Chetardi and Lestoc can come up with another harebrained scheme to discredit him, they'll try. Plus, we'll also be seeing if Elizabeth has made any progress with her nephew's wedding plans, and she has, and whether Maria Theresa will have had any luck in Silesia, and she won't. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the members-only offering on Patreon or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, look after yourself and stay as safe as you possibly can.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.